All right. So does everybody know what an expatriate is? Okay. Yeah, hold on a second. You're, you're ruining a joke I was planning. Thanks. It's okay. Not everybody heard that. Okay. Um, so it doesn't mean a person who used to be a patriot, like who was previously patriotic. That's spelled a little differently. So if you look in the bulletin, the title is elect expatriates, spelled differently than patriotism or um, that NFL team that shall not be named. Um, so especially today. Oh, my goodness. Go Eagles. All right. Okay. Um, so it means a person who lives outside their native country. Okay? So for instance, Alex and Betsy, uh, the Lewises, you know, any of our missions partners who are living abroad, they are expats. Sabrina, while she does her two-year stint with the Peace Corps, is an expat in Senegal. So title of this message this morning is Elect Expatriates, and hopefully you'll see why by the time we're done. But let me just say this before we dive into our passage. The people of God have always been elect expatriates. Okay? So Peter, in his first letter, uses the language of elect exiles. It's another way of saying it. Okay? So the elect part is sweet. If you're a Christian, if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, if you are a new creation in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, you've been made new, born again, that's because God elected to save you. He chose you. Like, think about how personal and wonderful that is, that he would set his affection on you. That he would choose to love you, to, lo to love me. Like, if we know who we are, if we know our sin, that's amazing. So he intentionally, personally plucked you from running headlong to hell, and he saved you. Jesus died for you personally. He didn't have to do it. So, I mean, we just rightly cry out. If we really understand the doctrine of election, we don't get proud and become the frozen chosen. Good grief. We cry out, why me? Like with humble, grateful awe and thanksgiving. Like, so the elect part is sweet, the chosen part is sweet, but the exile or the expatriate part is also true. We're not home yet. We're displaced from where we belong. We are in foreign territory. We're even in enemy territory. So this world is a battleground, Ephesians 6, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, principalities and powers. We are not in peacetime. This world is so broken. I mean, just read the news. Any day of the week, read the news. And it's obvious. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And we long for everything to be made right. Internally, in our relationships, in our world, we long to be at home, at peace, at rest. 
And that's where we're heading, but we're not home yet. So we are elect expatriates. We're displaced from our true and permanent home. But we are heading there, and we're heading there because we're chosen and beloved. We're heading there with God. God is for us, not against us. He is walking with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to fear. So elect expatriates, elect exiles, chosen and beloved pilgrims. So fellow pilgrims. We actually have a word from our Father and from our fatherland this morning from Genesis. And it's intended to encourage us as we walk through the wasteland of this world in route to the promised land, our true and eternal home. We're not the only ones that have trod this path before. The saints who've gone before us have much to say to us. Okay, so Hebrews 11. Actually, why don't you turn there? We're going to read Genesis um, 46, 47 in just a minute here, but we're going to end in the same place, so it'd be good to get this on the brain now. Hebrews 11, if you're using Pew Bible, it's on page 1008. Hebrews 11, after talking about some of the patriarchs, Abraham, In verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, like Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So we are Christian pilgrims like those who've gone before us. And this world is like a wasteland, and I'm sure you feel you're being displaced from your home. But we also should feel the fact that we are chosen and beloved. We're not alone as we walk through the wasteland. And others have gone before, and they're waiting for us at the finish line. So that's what happens as we enter into Genesis 46, 47. We're entering in to... Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, these people, it's a great cloud of witnesses, and you are running your race all the way home, so be cheered on and encouraged, because just as God was faithful to them, he will be faithful to us as well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the entirety of our text for this morning, which is the end of chapter 46, starting in verse 31, and through to the end of chapter 47. So mainly just chapter 47, but we're going to catch a few verses at the end of 46. So I'll make a few comments along the way, and then we're going to step back from the text and focus on four points of kind of application, implication from the passage, okay? So um, 
little bit of catch up to speed if you're visiting, if you're a guest this morning, or maybe you haven't been here for the Genesis series. We've been walking through the whole book a um, little bit at a time. And so Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, who was renamed as Israel, um, he's obviously the patriarch of the 12 tribes. So Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They were jealous of him. They hated him. His father, you know, favored him, gave him the special coat and all that. So when he was sold, he ended up in Egypt. And through a bunch of twists and turns of providence, Joseph ends up second in command of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the known world at the time. Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dreams that he had, which prepared Egypt for seven years of severe famine. He was able to prepare the, the land with seven Bountiful years so that they were ready for the famine to hit. The famine wasn't just localized in Egypt. It also hit Canaan, where Joseph's family lived, Jacob and his other sons. So the brothers had to go to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Instead of getting revenge on them, he forgave them and treated them kindly. And then he sends them back to retrieve his father and the rest of the family so that he can provide for them in Egypt because there's five more years of famine that are coming. So you can imagine the reunion of Israel, Jacob, with Joseph, how sweet that was. That's where we left off last week. Israel thought his son was dead. He'd been mourning that loss for like 20 years. And they're reunited in chapter 46, verses 28 to 30. There's lots of tears. And the whole clan came from Canaan and now they're about to be settled in Egypt. So that's where we pick up the story here this morning. So I'm going to read um, Genesis 46:31 to the end of 47, uh, make a few comments, and then we'll focus on four points. All right, so Genesis 46, beginning in verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, <clears throat> I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men. Maybe he brought five that would best represent the family. Maybe the five who were most well-spoken. And presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, 
How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. So Abraham lived 175 years. Isaac lived 180 years. So they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his, brother, his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of the dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they, brought, that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, which may mean that the famine is about to end, that this is actually the last year of the seven years that were predicted. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. So we should just stop here, because this might bother some of us. Um, this is not cruel or exploitative, by the standards of the time, just for what that's worth. It was actually gracious. So it was common for the kind of taxation here, you could say, to be in the realm of a third to 40%. Okay? So also you have to realize there's no welfare state or bankruptcy or credit system in the ancient Near East, right? It was either servanthood or death. So... In light of that, look at how the Egyptians respond. They don't, they don't, you know, say, you tyrant. In verse 25, they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. 
So they didn't view Joseph as an exploitative tyrant, but rather as a savior. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, a fifth of their produce. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. You notice the bookends? How many years did Jacob get with his son Joseph before he was sold? 17 years. And then he got 17 years after the reunion. There's actually an amazing structure um, in this passage. I won't be able to go into it, but there's kind of this mirroring. um, This corresponds with this and this with this and this with this and this with this like the whole way through. But anyway, if you're interested, I can send it to you. Um, So Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. This is like an oath, a serious oath, like a hand on the Bible. A little different, but kind of the same meaning. Yeah, we went into that back in chapter 24. I'm not going to repeat it now. All right, so promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So Jacob's pretty serious about this. (laughs) And he wants Joseph to be accountable to God, not just to him. Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Probably in signifying gratitude to Joseph, perhaps, but also worship, thanksgiving to God. So he's old. It's kind of a symbol of prostration. He couldn't bow to the ground. Um, He just did it symbolically because of his age. So there. Isn't it obvious where the sermon is in this passage? Okay. Well, actually, there's more here than I certainly saw in the first place, and hopefully we'll, we'll all see it together. So we step back and look at this and say, okay, um, so what? Well, first off, it reminded me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, where he commands his disciples to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Okay, so why does Joseph set things up this way for the people of God Jacob and his family, Israel and his family, to move to Goshen. This is a really wise, clever plan on Joseph's part. So he uses shrewdness and tact and even diplomacy. He says, say your shepherds. Is that true? Yes, it's true. But he's leveraging the fact that the Egyptians were repulsed by shepherds. Okay? We don't really know why. Um, It could have been, you know, the typical urban hipster disdain for, you know, the rednecks, kind of the ancient equivalent. Or it could have been cultic, religious, you know, like even when um, the the brothers came in to eat with Joseph. Remember, they all ate separately. So it almost could have been like a, 
you know, keep the food clean, and you can't eat with, just like Jews and Gentiles later on in Jesus' time. Anyway, but the point is, say your shepherds, that's true, but this will say to Pharaoh clearly that there's no threat to national security. You're not the Navy SEALs coming in to move next door. It also, you know, leveraged this repulsion of shepherds to ensure the separateness of the Israelites from mainstream Egyptian culture, okay? So Goshen was suitable for herdsmen. It was great for their flocks and herds. It was close enough to Joseph for him to be connected with them, but separate enough that they wouldn't be swallowed up by Egyptian culture, okay? They're not going to be pressured to assimilate to Egyptian culture and religion. You, you know how intermarriage, for instance, with Solomon took him down, right? Well, what happens if the Israelites intermarry with the Egyptians? I mean, over 400 years? There's not going to be any nation left, you see? So Joseph's chief concern is that they guard against compromise and assimilation, and he certainly knew the pressure. He lived it. By God's grace, I think it was clear that he didn't cave in, but he knew how powerful that could be. So he hatches this ingenious plan to make this separation happen. So one writer says, summarizes it well, he says, the actual physical isolation helps to elucidate how Israel was able to maintain its national cohesion, its language and traditions throughout the years of Egyptian bondage. Okay? So the point is, cleverness and shrewdness is not necessarily opposed to godliness. It's probably not a principle that we unpack very often in the church. But it is true. As Jesus commanded his disciples, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Okay? Matthew 10, 16. He was sending his disciples out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and so they needed to be wise so that they didn't get eaten alive. So think about Biblical history. Think about those Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. They were shrewd, and the babies survived. And God blessed them for that shrewdness, right? Think about Rahab and the, and the spies. It was by faith that she hid those spies. By faith in Yahweh, she believed. So God certainly forbids that we lie, but if someone is beating on your door to see if you are hiding slaves or Jews so that they can cart them off and brutalize them, they have forfeited their right to the truth and you are acting in love to protect them. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So we rightly view someone like Corey Ten Boom and her family as heroes of faith, for hiding many Jews and helping them escape the Nazi Holocaust. Or think about William Wilberforce and his friends in the Clapham sect in their work to end the slave trade and even abolish slavery in Britain. So he began that battle back in, eight, in 1787. So slavery was accepted and it was lucrative. It's like woven into the economy. So this is going to be serious uphill fight. It was like Wilberforce against the world. So he's going to need to be very wise if he's ever going to get anywhere with that. 
So the slave trade was so deeply foundational to the economy, and he and his fellow abolitionists knew that they had little chance of just ending everything outright straight away. So what they did, shrewdly, was they took an incremental approach. And this was totally born out of his Christian commitment, his trust in God. He had a really rich faith. You can read of it um, in his writings. So they first took aim at the slave trade, and only after that was achieved did they push to end slavery altogether. So some who were really passionate could have viewed that approach as, well, you're not passionate enough. Like, you must be lukewarm in your commitment to end slavery, or you would go for all of it. No, he was being shrewd because he knew how much opposition he would face in pursuing the goal. So listen to how they did this wise as serpents, innocent as doves, incrementalism. Chuck Colson writes of this approach. William Pitt was the minister, prime minister, and he was Wilberforce's friend. He first introduced a resolution in Parliament to discuss the slave trade. The motion passed easily. After all, the slave industry was not worried about a motion just to discuss abolition. The next move was to introduce a one-year experimental bill regulating the number of slaves that could be transported per ship. Wilberforce then gave his colleagues a first-hand look at the slave trade. He took several MPs to view a slave ship docked in London. They were horrified by the odor of death. If you saw the movie Amazing Grace, you probably remember that scene. The slave traders woke up to their danger and put their money to work. 1789, despite impassioned speeches by abolitionist leaders, the slave industry prevailed. So Wilberforce took his campaign to the public. So he and his followers spoke at meetings. They wrote songs. <laughs> Pop culture. They were wisely winning popular opinion. They organized a, a boycott of slave-grown sugar. The tide began to turn, but once again, the slave industry exercised a political muscle. 1792, Wilberforce made a motion to abolish the slave trade. In response, the House of Commons demanded that one word be added to the bill, the word gradually. The slavers knew the great value of that seemingly innocuous adverb. So Wilberforce was crushed, but he knew that it was a partial victory. That was the first time that the House actually voted for an abolition motion. By 1804, public sentiment for abolition was growing. In 1805, there was a new prime minister who was a staunch abolitionist, and he was willing to try new tactics. And in February of 1807, 20 years after the battle was joined, Parliament outlawed trafficking of humans. 20 years. And then it took more time after that to abolish slavery altogether. So actually, glad Abby tied adoption with pro-life cause because a consistent pro-life cause has to do with all kinds of things. End-of-life issues, beginning-of-life issues, adoption issues. And so the pro-life cause, particularly in regards to um, dealing with abortion in our country, the pro-life cause has learned from Wilberforce and the incremental approach. Okay? So certainly the goal is that one day abortion would be unthinkable, right? But it's better to make incremental gains than to say all or nothing and get nowhere. Right? So, 
We need to be careful here. This is like, whoa, okay. Is it okay to lie? If it, you know, we need to be careful here. I mean, we're very prone to take matters into our own hands, right? We oftentimes sacrifice fidelity to God on the altar of expedience. We get pragmatic. We do what's, what works rather than what's right. We love, we're, we're masters of justifying ungodly means with godly ends. Well, if I cut corners on my taxes, I'll have more to give to the church. No. So we've got a guard veering off into that ditch. But that doesn't mean that walking the path of faith means we check our brains at the door. The innocent as doves guards us from taking matters into our own hands. The wise as serpents enables us to use wisdom and creative means to accomplish God's good purposes for the good of others. That was Joseph's purpose. He wanted to make sure his family, God's covenant people, would be in Egypt provided for, but not of Egypt, compromised and assimilated. Okay? So that's point number two. So I, I touched on this already, but tease it out a little bit more. So Goshen's physical separation made it possible for the Israelites to maintain national identity and cohesion and not to be pressured to assimilate to Egyptian culture and religion, right? Again, intermarriage is kind of an easy way to tease this out, how you could see it just could really um, bring them down and they would end up being polytheists, right? And, and stop worshiping the one true God. So this meant that they were provided for in Egypt, but also meant that they weren't assimilated and swallowed up and becoming of Egypt. So they could be fruitful and multiply into a great nation, which was God's purpose all along. And this even sets up the movements later on, like when Moses is called by God and the plagues happen. Do you remember, like, for instance, with the uh, flies? There was a separation. There's all the flies in Egypt, but there's no flies in Goshen. See, the physical separation makes who's got God's blessing really clear. It makes that distinctiveness really clear. God puts a division between those who oppose God, the enemies of God, Pharaoh and his people, and the Israelites, his people. So we also, as God's covenant people, are to be in this world, but not of it. Okay? We are in the world. We're in the world for the world but not to be of the world. That's how Jesus prayed even in John 17. Um, John 17, 14 says, Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. He says, they, my disciples, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we as Christians are in the world, but we have to make sure that we're not of the world. This is God's pattern all along, and the people of God get in trouble when they start to assimilate and love the world and become like the world, right? So we're in the world, but not of the world, and we are in the world for the world, just like Jesus. In fact, we can only be for the world if we're not of the world. So listen to a couple passages along these lines. 
Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, separated to God, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so God, God is working through Joseph to keep his people separate so that they can multiply as a nation, so that they worship him alone, so that they don't get compromised and caved, cave in and assimilate into Egyptian false religion because he's planning on bringing them out and making them his holy people, right? So Psalm 1, same thing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. So we either take our cues from the world, or we take our cues from the word. And we are shaped by one or the other. Or how about the Beatitudes? Like the only way that we can actually be salt and light is if we are counter-cultural. Blessed are the poor in spirit, that's totally counter-cultural. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Totally countercultural, but that's actually how we, as the, the people of God, the church of Jesus, that's how we shine like a city on a hill. And we actually have to remain distinct if we're going to actually have a significant influence on the world. If the salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. You don't light a lamp and hide it under a basket. So, we, they needed to be in Egypt, but not of Egypt. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. Um, and then the third point here, move to number three. The real blessing is always with God. So this is, this is interesting. The blessing of God is present in some really conspicuous ways here in this passage. So watch what's happening. First kind of bird's eye view. You know, there's this whole section on how Joseph ends up obtaining all of the land and livestock of Egypt. Like, okay, what's the point of that? Well, did you notice what's happening? The Egyptians are losing their land in the midst of the famine. The people of Israel are receiving land, the best of the land, in the midst of famine. Huh. It's the blessing of God. Okay, God is at work here, blessing his people. There's loss of land and acquisition of land. Why? Because of the blessing of God, which foreshadows the time when Moses, through Moses, the plagues come, the people of God are protected, the Egyptians have to deal with those plagues. But even here, in this case, even though the people are losing their livestock and their land and whatever, even the Egyptians are being blessed. So J Joseph was raised up by God, the covenant blessings are being poured out on the nations, Egypt, through him. Joseph saves his own family and the Egyptians. You saved our lives. So God is the one who blesses. God is sovereign over all of this, and it's his blessing that matters. It's his blessing at work here. His promises to bless his people are being fulfilled. Another way the blessing of God is present in this passage is when Jacob is brought before Pharaoh. 
Did you notice anything that was kind of surprising or striking in that instance? Who blessed who? Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Wait a second. So who blesses who? The greater blesses the lesser. Okay, you can read Hebrews 7.7. 7. You could think back to Melchizedek and Abraham and that whole situation. It's, Hebrews 7.7 7 says, Beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Jacob is in line with the covenant promises of the blessing of God. That's why he's the greater one. So, I mean, Pharaoh's the mightiest man on earth. He's the greatest man on earth at the time. But that's nothing compared to Jacob being an elect expatriate. <laughs> he's one blessed by God, so he's actually got the real blessing to give. He's the greater one. So this is shocking. He doesn't bow the knee. We kind of expect Jacob to bow and call himself Pharaoh's servant. Instead, he raises his hands and blesses Pharaoh. He's calling on God to bless Pharaoh. And again, Genesis 12, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, is being fulfilled. So one commentator writes this, under Jacob's blessing on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's honoring of Israel, both prosper. Note this. This is a big picture, bird's eye view. Pharaoh gains control of all the property and people in Egypt. The Egyptians hail Joseph as a savior, and remarkably, Israel prospers even more than the Egyptians. This mutual blessing and prosperity anticipates the contrasting situation 430 years later when another Pharaoh curses the people of God curses Israel, and what happens to, to him? He's cursed. Do you see that? Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh is blessed, and the people of God are blessed. A new Pharaoh rises up who forgot about Joseph, curses the people, becomes this harsh taskmaster, and he is cursed, and the plagues fall. Okay? God is sovereign over history, and he's working out his purposes and fulfilling his promises. So the true blessing, the true power to bless resides with God and God alone, and we can trust that. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, those who trust him. So Jacob knows this. He believes this. So he doesn't get stars in his eyes in Egypt. He wants his bones taken elsewhere. What in the world is that all about? Okay, last point. Our future is not here. So, <clears throat> if you look at the end of this passage, <clears throat> when the time drew, this is verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph to him and said, if now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise me something. <laughs> promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Why? What's the big deal? Well, certainly we know that even though they settled in the best of the land, I mean, Jacob could have gotten comfortable. I kind of like it down here. That would have actually been denying the promise of God. He would have been selling out. He said, no way. 
I trust God. God already told me that he's going to bring us out one day and take us to the promised land. So I don't want to be buried here. I want you to take my bones out and bury me in Canaan. So Bruce Waltke writes this. He says, Jacob pins his hope and destiny on the land promised to the fathers, not on Egypt's abundance. He doesn't get bamboozled into thinking that Egypt is where it's at. Egypt wasn't his home. He's looking for the true homeland. Hebrews 11. These all died in faith. They saw the promise, but they didn't receive it, but they believed it, and so they were longing for a true home, a true homeland. So it's actually the same with us. Brothers and sisters, we are elect expats. We are not home. So if you feel oftentimes like, you just don't fit. You have these longings that just, and restlessness, and you know, sometimes our restlessness and, and our anxiety comes from our sin, but sometimes it's because we are displaced. We're not home yet. We are out of our native homeland, and yet we were made for that eternal city with foundations new creation, no more curse, no more night, no more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering. And so the fact that we are chosen means we're going to get there. And God is also honest with us that it's a pilgrimage. It's a journey. But he was faithful to keep his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and on and on and on and on. He's going to be faithful to keep his promises to us. So we also, how does Hebrews 12 begin? Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also throw off the things that weigh us down, entangle us, and let us run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jacob did not get comfortable in Vanity Fair in Egypt. This isn't home. Get my bones to Canaan. I'm looking for the promised land. That's where I belong. That's my home. So we also are Christian pilgrims, and we are en route to the promised land. And so we should long for that same thing to be said of us, that we would die in faith. We're not going to fully receive these promises until everybody crosses the finish line, Jesus comes back and makes everything new. But Jesus is coming back, and he's going to make everything new. And he's going to be with us on our pilgrimage all the way home, and we're going to help each other as fellow travelers on the way, and we're going to make it. Not because of what's in us, but because of God's faithfulness to his own promises. He did it for Jacob. He did it for Joseph. And he's going to do it for us. So therefore, brothers and sisters, fellow pilgrims, let us also. What's slowing you down? Throw it off. What's entangling you? Keeping you from running the race that's set before you? Throw it off. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, sat down. It's finished. We are safe and secure. Our future, our homeland, we belong, and we're going to be there. So let's fix our face like flint and keep walking. So I love this little... Um, a lot of what Jonathan Edwards wrote was you need to be highly caffeinated to be able to track with him because it can be dense stuff. But there is a little one, two, three, four page. I mean, these are really small, small print, but four pages called The Christian Pilgrim. It is like worth its weight in gold. And he says, I'll, I'll just give you two quotes. Um, the whole thing is worth reading. Does the traveler think of his journey's end with fear and terror? Is it terrible to him to think that he has almost got to his journey's end? I think sometimes we, we, we kind of act like we're walking away from our, we're backing away from our treasure. And getting older and dying is loss rather than gain. But God wants us to be free. Like, free from the fear of death and free from all of that encumbering loss. And he's going to make good on all of his promises. And our future is incredibly bright. And so, why would you hang out? Why would you be tempted to hang out in the rest stop pumping quarters into the magic arm, I think I'll just lay down on this bench. I'm just going to hang out here in Egypt. Are you crazy? Mama's cooking is calling. Get back in the car and let's go. We're Christian pilgrims. We're not home yet. We're expatriates. So back to Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Our deepest longings are still out there in the future. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for those who can't wait to get home. So here's our home, Christian pilgrims. Like I said, one last quote from Jonathan Edwards, and then we're going to sing a song and close. Here's what's waiting for us in the promised land. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey 
towards heaven as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? It's ours, and we're heading home to receive it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have chosen us, not because of anything in us, but because of everything in you, your mercy and kindness. And you have chosen us to give us yourself and to give us what we most deeply desire, fullness of joy forever in your presence at your right hand. And I pray that just like Jacob refused to sell out and wanted his bones to go to Egypt, we would not settle in and love this world, but that we would love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and long for your appearing and the renewal of all things so that we can be for this world, loving others, even our enemies, like Joseph did for his brothers. So Lord, please, we are Christian pilgrims. We often don't live like it. Help us to live like it. Help us to look to the city with foundations and continue to run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus and help us to help each other on the way. In Jesus' name, amen.